Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 8. <clears throat> Ezra chapter 8. The children of Israel have been preparing to leave Babylon, head back to Jerusalem. There's about 5,000 right in that area that are going back this time. Ezra's been making certain that they have everything, everything they're going to need for the journey, making certain that they have the Levites and the priest. He looked around, didn't see any Levites, and so he sent some of the leading men to go speak to them, to encourage them. And then sure enough, a number of the Levites decided to come. We had talked about as well, last, last week, verses 21 to 23, that as they are preparing to go, this is, uh, mind you, understand this, this is a 900-mile trip, 900 miles. It's going to take them four months to make this trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, as Ezra had been speaking to the king, of course, the king had granted him everything that he asked for, but when it came to giving him a military garrison to go with him, some soldiers to go with him, he decided not to do that. And he decided not to do that because he said to the king that our Lord is going to protect us. That's pretty much what he said. He, he says that I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. But his power and his anger were against all those who forsake him. So he already said to the king, we don't need anything because God is going to protect us. God is for us. He's going to protect us. And it seems as if he at least had some kind of a second thought or something to that effect. Because he says that he was ashamed to request. He was embarrassed to request more help when he knew the king would give it to him. So it seems as if, yeah, he, he may have had some second thoughts leading up to the start of the trip. Maybe I should have. But at the same time, what does he do? The Lord's reputation is on the line. He's already said to the king, we don't need anyone. We have the Lord. So what did he do but called for the people of God to fast and to pray? And so we talked about that. We talked about the need for fasting uh, in the Christian life and in, in, in prayer. It intensifies prayer, all of that. And now we're going to read of the journey. They're going to they're take some things with them. They're going to head out, and the, we're going fi to find out what day they leave, what day they're going to arrive. Now, we don't know exactly many details concerning the trip. We don't know what happened when they got 300 miles down the way. We don't know what happened... And when uh, uh, seems, it seems as if a band of robbers or someone had tried to ambush them, we don't know that whole scenario. We don't know if the people of God were able to fight them off or the Lord just held them back. We don't know. We're not given a whole lot of detail. But there are some things here that are very interesting and they're very applicable to us because you have Ezra who's going to record the fact that they are going to leave this day. They're preparing for all this. They're going to leave this day and they're going to encounter some enemies on the way. No great detail, but they're going to make it to their destination. It's like, why, why record that? 
Why is there a need for Ezra to record that? Couldn't he just say, we left this day, we arrived in Jerusalem, and this is what happened thereafter? But no, he wants to give us everything that they're taking, all the gold, all the silver, all of the priests that are going to be in charge of carrying all this stuff all the way to Jerusalem, in charge of keeping it. They're going to be consecrated to the Lord. He's going to tell us all this. They're going to get there. They're going to rest three days before they do anything. Why give us all that information? But there's some things for us to be encouraged by here. Because obviously this is our God who are, who are leading this, these people uh, to the, the land of promise. They're going to encounter a number of things on the way. But they trusted in the Lord throughout the entire journey. And they made it to the destination by trusting in the Lord. And it's interesting how the Christian life is likened to a walk, a journey, how the writers of, of Scripture talk about how we're sojourners, we're exiles on the earth, we're strangers in a foreign land, all of that kind of language. And it really helps us to, to at least gather some, some understanding of God's care and provision that He gives us as we are walking in, in well, I say walking, uh, in our journey uh, toward the promised land. And there's a lot of similarities when you begin to kind of ponder some of that about uh, Pilgrim's Progress, how you have Christian who's going who's gonna to leave and he, he's heading towards the celestial city and he encounters a number of things on the way, that the Lord is providing everything that is needed along the way just as he is providing it here. So there, there's reason why the writers of Scripture had, or Ezra in particular, had recorded this for us. And we know from the New Testament, at least with, with Paul especially, how he uses a number of examples from the Old Testament to give us examples. What, what to do, what not to do, don't be like that generation, etc., etc. Um, so there are things that we need to give our attention to from this passage that we may understand some of God's care and provision, that we be encouraged by it, be strengthened by it. Because the Christian life is a journey. We know our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. We're not to cling to this world. As the writer of Hebrews says about the generation of those that had died in faith, that they were exiles and strangers in a foreign land. We are also exiles and strangers in a foreign land because the way that this world is at this present time, as, the, as uh, John tells us, the world lies in the, in the power of the evil one right now. This, this world is still sin-laden. It's still full of wickedness and evil. And this is not our final home. Our final home is, is the redeemed earth. It is the redeemed heavens. It is, it is no more sin, no more wickedness. That is the home in which we seek. That is the home that the Lord has promised us. But that is yet to come. We still have to work our way through this world. We still have to be, as Jesus says, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. We still have to navigate through this world. And we have to navigate with Christ being our center, following him, following his guidance, and not being distracted by other things or losing our confidence in him our captain who, are, who is leading us. So there are some things here uh, for us to be looking at. How does the Lord provide for us? How does the Lord protect us? What does he do for us? All of that. So let's look at some of this. 
in Ezra chapter 8. We're going to read verses 24 to 36. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> and let us hear the words of the living God. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and with them ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the utensils, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present there, present there had offered. Thus I weighed into their hands six hundred and fifty talents of silver, and silver utensils worth a hundred talents, and a hundred gold talents, and twenty gold bowls, bowls worth, one thousand derricks, and two utensils of fine shiny bronze, precious as gold. Then I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the utensils are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' households of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and gold and, and the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we journeyed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. On the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas, and with them were the Levites, Jozebad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. Everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, twelve male goats for a sin offering, all as a burnt offering to the Lord. Then they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people and the house of God. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for all that you are, all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the encouragement that we continually receive from your word, which teaches us even more so of who you are and the love and the care that you give to your people, the grace that you provide, the endurance that you provide. Thank you so much that you don't leave us as orphans, you never forsake us, but you provide everything that we need in the moments that we need it. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. As we work our way through this passage, Father, encourage our hearts, strengthen us, as your word continually does. Let it feed our souls. That we may feast upon the bread of life this evening and grow. Father, thank you so much for the gift of salvation, for your word. Thank you so much for everything that you provide. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we're, <clears throat> excuse me. we're reading here of a lot of silver, a lot of gold, 
And adding all of that up, as a lot of theologians have, you come up with about 25 tons of silver and about three and three-quarter tons of gold. That's a lot. A lot of silver, a lot of gold. It was provided to them. It is, as he says, this is, this is part of the freewill offering that is given to the Lord for the house of our God. Uh, and it's broken up in a variety of things, of course. You have the utensils, you have the bowls, you have all kinds of different things here. But it all adds up to, to all of that. Now, why does he give us all of that? And then he, he tells us not only that, but he sets apart 12 of the leading priests. Again, you got that number 12 again. You have 12 families, 12 priests, and, and of course, describing for us uh, that the, the children of Israel going home. Uh, representative of the 12 tribes. He's going to set them apart. These two specifically, Sherebiah and Hashabiah, and with them 10 of their brothers. These are some of the leading men that we read of earlier in Casaphia that Ezra had sent some of the other leading men to go and to gather them. They're going to be put in charge over this. They are set apart for this specific task. As they are on their journey the Lord has entrusted something specific to them. They are responsible for it. Now, you see some wisdom, of course, with Ezra, how Ezra is delegating things. That's, that's a sign of a good leader. When you can delegate to other people, uh, that is, uh, you know, more hands make for lighter work. Uh, when you have capable people, you want to be able to use the capable people that you have in order to accomplish whatever it is that the task calls for. So Ezra is here. He's delegating this to these 12 leading priests. They weighed out all this gold. They weigh out all this silver. And he specifically tells them, you all are set apart. You're set apart. You're consecrated to the Lord. These are consecrated to the Lord. You're holy to the Lord. That's the idea, of course. You are holy to the Lord. These are holy to the Lord. That's what he says. And you are to keep these. You are to watch over them. You are to, to guard them throughout this entire journey as we head back home. Now, why, again, this is, this is something that is, I mean, it's interesting, no doubt. But it's something that really teaches us, too, about good stewardship. You've been entrusted with something, you have a certain task, or you have something that you are specifically keeping for the Lord, you're guarding for the Lord, and you are to be responsible in exercising it as a good steward of the Lord. Now, whether that includes the time in which something very similar in the sense of, of how we're talking about silver and gold, when, when we give unto the Lord, we give responsibly unto the Lord. We give cheerfully unto the Lord. We give as the Lord has beckoned us to give. And then when we take that money, we are to use it as good stewards of the household of God. We are to manage it well. We are to guard it. We're not to be flippant with it. And that includes a number of different things, not just specifically for this, but whatever it is that the Lord has entrusted to you, whatever the Lord has granted to you, you are to keep watch over. You're to, to be a good steward, be a good manager. That's what the idea is. When you talk about a steward, you're talking about a manager. You're to manage it well. It's a gift to you, you know. And it's it's one of those it's one of those uh, scenarios of like we say often whenever we 
you know, are, are ready to uh, take up the offering, we always acknowledge that these things of which we have, everything belongs to the Lord and the Lord has entrusted it to us and we are to manage it well. There, there is such a need uh, for the people of God to be good stewards, not to go out and just spend without any care or to, uh, to not just to, to spend it on you know, material things or whatever, but to just not appreciate what you have and just be so flippant with it. Like it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's unimportant to you. These things have been granted to you. The Lord has entrusted these to you. So what then are you to do with it? Well, first, do you recognize that these things are from the Lord? That's why they're, now, all of this was given to the people of Israel to go back to the house of their God. Everybody knows this. But he specifically pinpoints them and, and makes them aware even more so you are holy to the Lord. You are to guard this. This is your task. This is your responsibility. Do you recognize, dear friends, that what the Lord has entrusted to you, you are to be good stewards of. You are to be good managers of. Because it's His, and He has granted it to you for the purpose of furthering His kingdom, for the purpose of providing for you that you can continue the work of the Lord. Things are not just given to us in the sense of you can just do whatever you want with it. You have to understand, too, that everything that is given to us is to be used in some way or other for the glory of God. It's been entrusted to you. It's been set apart for you in your specific life. When you talk about not just the things materially that we have, but the things that God has entrusted to us spiritually, whether it's the salvation that has been granted to you, whether it's the the empowering of the Holy Spirit that has been granted to you. You go to those things and you look at passages like 1 Timothy chapter 6 or 2 Timothy chapter 1, and you have the Apostle Paul that is encouraging Timothy to guard what has been entrusted to you. You guard it. You watch over it. You protect it. You're responsible for it. You're responsible to exercise your gifts unto the Lord. You're responsible to be uh, 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 an example to others because you have received this salvation. You are to lead by example. There are a number of things that you can look at in your own life and you can see what the Lord has granted to you and how you ought to be responsible with it. How you are to glorify God, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what we're told. <clears throat> Everything that you have in this life for the journey that he has granted to us has all been entrusted to you. God has provided it. And God has provided it for the purpose of glorifying Him. Because these things that they are guarding over, these things that they are keeping watch over, are going to be used specifically for the house of God, for the worship of the Lord, to lead the people uh, to, to praise the Lord for everything that He's provided for them. It's not just to make them rich. It's not just to give them so much gold that people are just looking at them going, wow, that is amazing. Look how much gold that they have. Look how much silver that they have. It is used specifically in order to encourage the people of God even more so to glorify God. This is everything that he's provided. 
and it's provided for the purpose of moving the hearts of God's people. Whether you have a lot, whether you have a little, everything that is granted to you is for the purpose of glorifying your Lord to move your heart in praise and thanksgiving to him. And again, whether you have a lot or you don't, we know from the Apostle Paul, of course, in Philippians, that he learned to be content having a lot, having a little. Right? Because he appreciated everything that was given to him. And he, he used it wisely. Whatever was given to him, whatever was entrusted to him. He tried to glorify our Lord in every aspect of his life. Money is one of those things that tends to cause problems, for sure. But if we keep in our minds and we keep our, our focus in the sense when it comes to money, when it comes to material things, that, that God, if God has allowed me to have a lot of money, then that only means that the Lord has allowed you a greater opportunity to give and to glorify not to hoard up, but he has blessed you that you may bless others even more. You'd be a good steward. We sometimes like to relegate our glorifying to the Lord or our responsibilities to the Lord in certain aspects of our life. But we remember that he is the Lord of our whole life. Every part of our life is governed under the lordship of Christ Jesus. What has been entrusted to you? Are you using it wisely? The now this is going to be across the board for everybody. The salvation that has been granted to you. The gifts and the empowering of the spirit of God that have been granted to you. Are you being responsible? Are you seeking God's glory in, every, in all of that? Are you trying to live by example? Are you trying to, in this journey in life, walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called, to walk worthy of Christ as you move forward in this life? It really puts a lot of things in perspective. If we just stop for a moment to understand, and not just to say it, but to truly understand that everything that you have has been granted to you. You didn't come up with it. I'm not trying to sound like Obama. You didn't do it on your own. But you didn't do it on your own. Because it's the Lord God that had granted it to you. The Lord God is the one that gave it to you. And are you keeping watch over it? Are you guarding it? What he has entrusted? Spiritually, physically, All the provisions that God has provided you need for the journey. So you don't waste it. You don't squander it. You use it wisely. So we read of, of course, all of this gold, all of this silver. It's all for the house of the Lord. They are entrusted with it. These priests and Levites. They accepted the weighed out silver and gold and the utensils 
to bring them back to Jerusalem to the house of our God. And then we read of the journey. So you have the preparations that are given, the provisions that are given, the responsibilities that are given, everything that we are, were just talking about that have been set apart for the people of God that they are taking back to Jerusalem. Then we have just a little bit of information from the journey, not a whole lot. All Ezra says really is then we journeyed from the river Ahava, on the, this is where they've been camping, on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And what he tells us is, is that the hand of our God was over us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. Not a whole lot of information. Like I said, we don't know what happened midway during the, the, the journey. We don't know what happened three-quarters of the way through the journey. We don't know if there were any bickering that went back and forth with some of the people. We don't know if they had been tempted by any of the other people coming or whose land that they were traveling through. We don't know what happened with the ambushes. We, we don't have any of that information. The, the main point that he makes in this whole, uh, this, this whole set of verses right here, just these two, 31 to 32, is that the hand of our God was over us. That's all we need to know. That's what he felt. That's the only thing we needed to know, was that the hand of our God was over us. He's used that a, a number of different times throughout this book to describe God's, God's care over him, God's care over the people. The hand of our God was with us. And here he says, the hand of our God was over us, protecting us and delivering us. He delivered us from the enemy. He delivered us from the robbers, those that sought to, to attack us. He delivered us. Because you figure 900 miles, you're going to encounter those who are going to set ambushes, trying to rob you know, big groups coming through, caravans coming through, whatever. They're going to try to rob them. But the hand of our God was with us, was over us. And I couldn't help but think this is probably a little bit of a footnote there, but I couldn't help but think this as we, I was looking at the passage about that specifically of how the hand of our God was over us and he delivered us from the enemy and from the ambushes, by the way. I was thinking about how people get on this big kick about free will, how the Lord doesn't interfere with free will, that God allows people to do what they do. And he's not going to, to violate someone's free will. And I got to thinking, well, those robbers and those enemies of God wanted to rob them. They really wanted to rob them. It was their free will that they should have been able to rob them. But God seemed to have intervened and either held them back or allowed his people to push them back, which violated their free will. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. If the Lord intervenes to, in, in that understanding, violate someone's free will to keep them from doing what he doesn't want them to, doing, to do, he has every right to do that. And that, and that encompasses every part of, of, of our lives as well. Whatever the Lord bids to do, whatever the Lord wills to do, that is what he does. He is the potter. We are the clay. I mean, I mean that is such an emphasis 
uh, that, would, that we want to put forward there. He's the potter, we're the clay. He does whatever he pleases. And knowing that when we look at everything that happens within history, when we look at everything that happens within redemptive history, all of that is orchestrated and governed by the Lord our God. He doesn't respond to free will. He decrees what's going to happen. Now, when he decrees something to happen, even if it's something that is evil, not that the Lord ever is responsible for committing evil acts, but God does use secondary means in order to accomplish things. And when he decrees for something to occur, like Pharaoh keeping the children of Israel from leaving so that he can display his wonders even more so in Pharaoh, he's not violating Pharaoh's free will because Pharaoh is fallen. He's only sinful. He wants to do sinful things, and so the Lord hardens his heart to have him do it again. So whatever it is that the Lord decides to do, he has the ultimate free will to do that. And none can charge him with injustice, when, especially when we read things like this. He intervenes at any point that he wants, and at no time is he committing any injustice. When we ask the Lord to protect us, what is it that we're doing? We're asking him to intervene. We're asking him to keep us safe and to keep anyone that would harm us from committing that act. That's what we're asking him to do. That's what we're praying for him to do. Because he is capable of doing it. He is capable of doing anything at any moment that he desires. And as we are moving through this life, there are going to be many instances in which we are going to encounter various trials, various temptations, various sufferings, various enemies. There's going to be so many things along the way to try to keep us from, from, from getting to the destination, if you will, that are going to try to lure us out or whatever, or beat us down, or cause us to be so disheartened. But recognize this, that for those who are truly in Christ, those who have the Spirit of God in you, you can rest assured that the hand of your God is upon you. You know, I like what James White said at this year's G3 conference. He was talking about those that are being persecuted throughout the world, and he said about people like in America, what would we do if this ever happened? And he says, I guarantee you that if you are a true child of God, you will endure it. Guaranteed. Why? Because the hand of your God is upon you. To provide everything that you need in order to endure whatever comes to pass. A lot of times we wonder, well, what would we do in that situation? Well, we don't really need to wonder because God is going to provide exactly what we need once we get to that situation. His grace is sufficient, he says. His power is perfected in weakness. Everything that is needed is provided for us in the Holy Spirit of God that is within us. He is the power of God who resides within you, providing everything. Every ounce of endurance is his. Every ounce of strength is his. 
your, your self-control, your sound mind, everything is him doing, keeping you, holding you, providing for you. Just as the writer of Hebrews says of the people of faith, they were exiles and strangers. Here the children of Israel are indeed exiles, and they have to travel a long way. Now, they're not traveling, obviously, in a car. We think of a 900-mile trip, automatically we're thinking, man, this is going to be rough. All, all cooped up in a car. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be hours, hours upon hours. Who's going to drive? I mean, just all kinds of, of things that we think of. These people are walking on foot. And that in and of itself is a very difficult scenario. This isn't something to take lightly that they're going to make a 900-mile trip. There is endurance that is involved here. There is strength that is needed here. There is a, a right mindset and a right attitude that is needed here in order to make this journey. And the hand of their God being upon them provided the endurance, provided the strength, provided the wisdom, provided the right attitude, provided the right disposition of the heart, everything that was needed in order to make the journey. We shouldn't take that lightly. We think, okay, they travel from here to there. Walking. They're not on a horse. They're walking. We get so many hours down the, the road and we think, are we there yet? Or the kids ask it for you. It's aggravating. It can be. And we're talking maybe a six-hour trip, 12-hour trip. They're walking 900 miles. One-way trip, and the Lord is providing it all that they need. And that is so true of this journey that we are on as well. Again, this is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that's where we're moving toward. We're trying to, to lay hold of that which laid hold upon us. We're trying to, to take the kingdom, enter the kingdom. You know, you think of in Matthew 11, whenever uh, that's recorded, where Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. He's not talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot seize the kingdom. The kingdom is spiritual. The kingdom of, of our Lord will never be deterred by anything by man. No unbeliever can seize the kingdom. He's, if you look at Thomas Watson's book, Heaven Taken by Storm, the Puritan Thomas Watson, he describes in there of, of, of taking the kingdom of God by, by violence in that sense, of exerting every ounce of everything that you have to take it, to enter into it. And this journey that we are on, it is to be with, with every ounce of your being that you are that you're moving toward 
even more so. You're moving toward your king. You're moving down the path of righteousness. You're not just idly going by in this life. That your, your strength is being engaged as you are moving in this journey, and God is providing everything that you need. You think of those fruit, that fruit of the Spirit that we hear of, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of those things help to guide us throughout this life, to keep us in the right attitude, to keep the right mindset on us, that we don't respond the ways that we shouldn't, but that we keep our focus. And God is the one providing all of that. Why don't you give up whenever bad things happen? Because the Spirit of God will not allow you to. Because it's His strength. It's His endurance. You're moving forward. You're persevering. That's one of the things that we talk about is the perseverance of the saints. You're moving forward. You continue to believe, and you will continue to believe until you make it home. He provides it all. Now, as they, as they are moving in this, as they are journeying this 900-mile trip with, with these dangers along the way, trusting in God, having confidence in Him, knowing that His hand is upon them, His sovereign hand, they make it to Jerusalem. And after a 900-mile trip, what do they do? They're going to rest for three days. But then they are going to fulfill their task. He says, on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eliezer, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Jazabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. Everything was numbered and weighed, and all the weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had come from captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 97, excuse me, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats for a sin offering, all as a burnt offering to the Lord. Then they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps and to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they supported the people and the house of God. So they made the journey. They kept everything that they were supposed to, that they were held responsible for, and they delivered it to the house of God. And as they get to the end of their journey, what is it that they do? They make it to Jerusalem. What's going to be one of their first priorities? They're going to go to the house of God and they're going to offer burnt offerings. They're going to go worship. Out of everything that God has done, everything that God has provided throughout this four-month journey, when they reach their destination, they offer him worship. Not only do they offer him worship, but in obedience to uh, the law, even of the Persians, they deliver the king's edicts to the king's satraps, to the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and the people of God were supported. They obeyed God even in doing that as well. Their main priority was to get to Jerusalem, to be able to worship in the place of which they had read of before, the place that they had never seen, only heard of. And they kept everything that God had granted to them. 
every provision that God had provided, they are taking it. They're going to be good stewards with it. They're going to make the journey. They're going to trust in the Lord. They're going to have confidence in him. And then when they get there, they give it all back and they worship. We worship during the journey. No doubt we will worship at the end of the journey. Because it's going to be at the end when we finally are privileged to lay eyes upon him who died for us. Saying, this is all I have. And to cast our crowns at his feet, our rewards at his feet, as you hear often, because it was all his. Everything was provided by him. He did it all. And to ascribe to him the worth that is due to him. We make attempts to do that now, of course, imperfectly. We make attempts to love him as we should now, but imperfectly. We make attempts to set before our very eyes the majesty and the glory of God. But we do it imperfectly. But a time is going to come when the Lord brings us to the end. Just as with Christian, when he finally gets to the celestial city. A time will come when the one of whom we read about, the one whom we love yet haven't seen, will bring us home. And will grant us the privilege to love him as we should, to worship him as we should. To be able to to ascribe that worth to him. Because again, he's granting everything needed for the journey. The same God that's doing this for his people here is the same God doing it now for you and me. Yeah, we're not walking 900 miles, but every day we are engaged among unbelieving people among temptations, among various trials, there is always things that, that we're having to deal with, things that we're having to contend with, things that we're striving to overcome. And whom shall we trust but him? Who shall deliver us but him? Who shall provide everything that we need but him? Just as he has done for all of his people throughout all of redemptive history, he is doing it for you. He's doing it for you now. You have what you need. You have everything needed for the journey. If you just begin to stop and reflect upon what it is that has been granted to you. How then can you begin, if you're not already, to use it for his glory. To exert all your energy in taking the kingdom by storm. Pursuing even, even with greater strength to lay hold of, of our great king. Are you trusting him? Are you having confidence in him? Do you recognize that you're not a strong person? Everything is by his strength. If you can just stop for a minute and begin to think and 
I think all of us would, would recognize that that wasn't me. That could have only been him. I would have given up a long time ago. That wasn't me. God blessed me with that opportunity. I didn't do that. God kept me from this temptation here. God gave me endurance for this trial here. It wasn't me. So if we just stop for a minute and just do some reflecting, because that's what he's doing. He's telling us about this, and he's reflecting back on it. And, and, and just reflect back on what God has, has provided and done for you, what he's doing now. Then let your heart be lifted up even more so to ascribe to him the worth that is due to him. He is always with us, always providing. Never is he idle, and never is he a responder to the free will of man, ever. He's the decreer. He's the initiator. He's the planner, never the responder. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your continued presence with us. Father, we look back on passages like this, and we are indeed reminded of your care for your people, of the provision that you grant to them, that they are to keep and be responsible for, of the trust that they are to have in you, recognizing that your hand is with them. Father, let this passage be even more real to us in our hearts. We don't just look at this and say, wow, that's amazing to, for that generation, but we recognize that you are continually with us doing these very things and calling us to live holy, setting us apart and providing for each of us different gifts, different provisions that we are to use and to maintain and to guard for the purpose of you being glorified in us. To use them wisely. Use them that you would be honored. Father, help us to see your hand in all, every aspect of our life. And let us rejoice in it as we recognize it. Father, thank you so much that through the pages of Scripture we can truly see your sovereign hand. And then thank you so much that within your sovereignty, within your plan, you sent Christ to die for us, to redeem us, that we can come before you in times like this to say thank you, to say glory be to you, and everything. Thank you for all that you are, all that you do for us daily, hourly, every minute. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.